I'm Joe Forish, and this is You Say Data, I Say Data podcast. We talk about data, analytics, and its impact on business and society. We are the podcast for the Analytics Impact Network. Please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org. How can you make passive income using a self-driving car or a drone? Have you ever wondered how financial technology works for job seekers? The recruiting process is now faster and easier than ever. Find out about this and more in the latest episode. My guest today is Scott DeAngelis. Scott is an Associate Vice President of Financial Technology Sales for Selby Jennings in Charlotte, North Carolina. Scott has been working in recruitment for several years and recently relocated from New York to continue building out the Selby Jennings platform in the Southeast. He has partnered with many of the most reputable firms in the country to provide senior level talent solutions across his areas of expertise, which includes alternative data, research, software, and digital transformation. Today's episode is brought to you by Selby Jennings. Selby Jennings is a leading specialist recruiter for banking and financial services. Founded in 2004, the firm helped solve the number one challenge, talent. Today, the firm provides permanent, contract, and multi-hire recruitment solutions across specialist sectors including risk management, compliance, investment management, quantitative analytics, financial technology, investment banking, insurance, and sales and trading. Please visit selvagenings.com. Get in touch to discover how Selby Jennings can help you find the right talent or define your next career move. So today with me on the show, we have Scott DeAngelis, who is a recruiter at Selby Jennings, and he focuses primarily on financial services. I want to let him talk about what he does. And we have a mutual friend, and I've, I've heard that he is now the number one recruiter at the firm. Is that correct, Scott? Oh, it's just this. Uh, <laughs> I've had a I've had a really good year. I think it's um, safe to say a lot of recruiters are doing really well and have uh, had fantastic years. Which is, for a lot in a lot of cases, I think it's really well well, well deserved because um, after COVID, I think there were a lot of lulls. A lot of people left the industry, so it's really good to see not just myself but a lot of hardworking people in our business and within the within the industry seem to be having a, a really great start to the year. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. You focus primarily on financial services, correct? Selby is kind of, I guess, our parent company, Faden International. We've got five micro-specialist brands. So Selby Jennings is kind of our flagship brand, and it was kind of built upon the premise of serving investment banks, asset managers, and hedge funds, prop trading firms as well. And my team sprung up over the past, say, seven years or so with the inception of financial technology. So I'm kind of in the, you know, if it's a technology platform that is built to serve a financial services institution, that's where somebody like myself would be able to come in. And when you say technology platform, that's a really big word that's thrown around a lot these days. Can you tell our audience what that means exactly? It's kind of gray, right? It's where my, what my space can, when I'm under the, the guise of fintech sales or fintech product, I'm allowed to or able to work with and serve companies within data technology, encapsulate a variety of things from consumer credit, natural language processing, uh, geospatial location data, you know, that type of stuff uh, all kind of falls under just data or alternative data, market data, credit data. So there's so that's a that's a space in and of itself and kind of does fall a little bit under fintech. 
financial technology, I think, as we're, it was initially, originally coined, uh, would probably be more along the lines of uh, perhaps some kind of a trading technology, something that helps to execute uh, order management, things like that, or even in, in some cases as well, payment processing technology, and then software, right? Software, anything that serves the front uh, to back office or end-to-end -end types of solutions. So it's a, a really broad space, it takes a real long time to kind of to get your footing in it, but it's a lot of fun once you, uh, you kind of get in the midst of it. Yeah, there's a lot of different buckets, as you said, and I feel that over the past, you said seven years, that a lot of these fields have essentially almost come out of nowhere in a lot of ways, that they're, they're new, they're changing the landscape, uh, as you said, whether it's through payments or through end-to-end -end processes or working with the back office at a bank, for example. So it's pretty remarkable how this has all occurred relatively overnight in, in the realm of financial services because your banks have been around for a long, long time. You've kind of touched on my next question a little bit as to how technology has impacted your experience as a recruiter, but are there any other ways? I understand like it's giving you a broader scale, more people to recruit, more talent out there, but in terms of your own process, has technology helped you you move the ball forward, so to speak, with bringing clients into better roles? You know, I think Zoom, for everyone, that's disrupt been disruptive. But for us, in the way it's impacted our business, in lieu of being able to use, you know, face-to-face -face meetings, where in, in a sales role, that's super important. Like even get, you know, getting this face-to-face -face contact, it, uh, it makes a conversation a lot easier. From an interview process perspective, it has expedited things a lot. I think that process where otherwise some folks would have to, to sneak out of work or sneak out of the office to go and, and interview somewhere and then maybe not get the job. Now, you know, most of us are working from home and you can spare 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there to speak with someone on the phone. It cuts the process in half. And I think that's been, it's been very helpful in meeting the demand because people are, there's so much pent up demand for hiring that didn't take place last year due to the pandemic but it also expedites the process in a lot of ways. And you can work someone through a process, figure it out if they're, if they're a fit or not without taking up too much time on either end. That's great for everyone that's involved because as you said, it expedites the process. And right now there's you know, a lot of people out there looking for jobs. So I think it's good for everyone. Now, in terms of your location, you're based in Charlotte. And from what I understand, you recently moved there, correct? Yes. I also understand that that region is changing quite a bit with regards to banking, consulting, and any sort of tech job uh, that we spoke about. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? My story is unique in the sense that COVID didn't force me to move. We kind of decided Charlotte was our newest office. Our business had identified the Southeast as an area that was ripe for growth. And, you know, obviously Charlotte is, is kind of a, a little known fact, I guess, for, for some folks who don't realize that it's actually the second largest banking city really? in wow. the United States. So, you know, 750,000, yeah, 750 some odd thousand people, you still have all the large consultancies, a lot of the big banks play here, and I think we're only going to continue to see that. So in what led to my move, I kind of recognized that, you know, this is a, an office that's, there's a lot of growth that can be had, and this is a great opportunity to come down and have a little bit more of an impact selfishly on the, the development of, a, of an office and really kind of have my fingerprints along that but also really take advantage of a place where I'm excited about the future, whether it be Florida, Charlotte, or you know, even in some cases, Texas. Geographically, I think we're going to be, see a seismic shift in you know, 
where tech and finance jobs are, are stationed. So even though you're based in Charlotte, you still do recruiting for markets like Texas and Florida as well? Yeah. So when I originally started, it was, it was myself and two other guys on a tech sales team. We, did, we dabbled in a bit of product as well. Now the team's up to, we've almost some about nine folks now, and I'm the first one in, in Charlotte, but the team's really grown quickly. And I don't cover New York anymore because they've got that, uh, right. they've got that cordoned off quite well. But now, you know, I'm still working nationally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still working nationally, building out uh, relationships in Florida, Charlotte, Texas. And then, you know, I think further down the line, we'll probably see someone in, in California pop up sooner rather than later. That's great. And that's good for you. It's good for everyone that's involved. You know, I think a lot of people out there who may be listening who are looking for a job within the areas we mentioned should probably reach out to you so we could give you contact information at the end. How is data actually changing the landscape for your clients? A lot of these data platforms where you say, you know, the companies that can adopt and change and where the pain of change is minute uh, by comparison are these smaller hedge funds, prop trading shops. So if they were able to get their hands on, let's say alternative data was a great instance of this, where somebody finds a data set that makes a huge impact in your ability to generate alpha, the, the hedge fund guys can pick it up, figure out how to use it. What we saw with a lot of these small upstart data firms, particularly within consumer credit, and that, that became a very quickly commoditized space where a lot of these guys were buying from the same data lake, taking the same data, punching it through a very similar uh, algorithm, cleaning it very, uh, you know, very similarly, and putting out very similar data sets. So the difference in the disparity in the value points, or the value proposition rather, was very limited. Um, so they got a lot of success for hedge funds, but once everybody started doing it, the values diminished. In what other areas do these data companies work? And then some of these, even, you know, the other ones, natural language processing that we discussed where people would analyze an earnings call to detect instances perhaps of a, a CEO being disingenuous or, you know, where can we perhaps generate value analyzing 10 calls at once as opposed to having you or I sit on a call for, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours trying to figure out if it's a good buy. That applied and caught on very quickly for some of these quick traders. Asset managers were a little bit slower to adapt. And that's where a lot of these smaller vendors, when the tides turned a little bit and the hedge fund said, you know what, we don't need to resubscribe, they hit a wall. And then we saw, as with anything else, larger conglomerates either partnered with the ones that remained and didn't fold, or in some cases they, they purchased them. But that was, uh, there was some consolidation. I got it. Now, for our listeners, I want you to clarify uh, some of the things you spoke about. When you were talking about the asset managers and the hedge funds, you talked about the concept of alpha. Can you tell our audience what alpha is? So that you'd be you'd want to generate positive returns on a buy. So depending on how a fund operates, whether they're you know going along on a stock or they want to short it, um, the returns that that data set can help them to to make critical business decisions or investment decisions upon um, is really important to how the fund functions and. Uh, if your fund's not performing too well, very quickly, your investors will be, uh, will be at your door. That's correct. <laughs> no, I think that's a great answer. When you're talking about the data sets and the, the data lake and how, especially on consumer credit, how that was easily commoditized, I'm curious as to how one data lake was available to so many different players in such a very fast amount of time. Do you have any clarity on that? Let's say a company, company X, buys all of the credit card data from Amex or MasterCard or, or um, whoever the, 
the vendor is, right? They've got all of this data, they've bought all of it, and they have access to it, and they can sell it to whoever they choose to. Now you've got the small time players who think they've built a great algorithm that's going to spew out just, you know, an absolute winning formula for how you're going to generate. And everyone's going to get rich by doing this, right? Everyone's going to get rich. But if everybody hasn't really differentiated, they're working with the same numbers. They're not really changing how they're interpreting what that number means. And they're all kind of going through very similar processes to get the same answer. All of a sudden, what you're going to see is a lot of the companies, well, how that drives the price down and it almost makes the, the cost of going out to purchase the data from the initial data lake vendor. Um, the juice isn't worth the squeeze would be the best way to interpret Got it. Got <laughs> it. I understand. Now there's also a lot of different areas within alternative investments and alternative investments can be anything from hedge funds through buying rights to movies or songs. And some of those ideas that we chat about before were things like self-driving cars. And there was an idea that you mentioned that I want you to talk about a little bit, which I thought was really fascinating. And it could be a passive income strategy for a lot of people out there. What I thought was quite cool is something that Elon Musk alluded to is that um, if you bought a Tesla, for instance, or you could buy a fleet of Teslas, but I think it'd be really interesting to see if somebody were able to kind of build a, a workforce of, uh, you know, AI enabled uh, technology that can produ produce a passive return for you 24 hours a day. It's, it's a fascinating concept. Yeah, that's very remarkable. I would think that buying a fleet of Teslas probably would be pretty expensive. <laughs> Maybe over time, the prices of the cars will come down, but there could be an immediate cheaper alternative with drone delivery. It's more or less the same concept. Obviously, I think there's probably some more time until that technology develops and there's different laws, rules, regulations change, but I would imagine buying a fleet of drones to do similar tasks would be a much cheaper alternative for passive income. That's not a bad, uh, not a bad idea at all. And I was just watching a video yesterday about Amazon and about how they kind of saved the cardboard box industry because people weren't getting their uh, their digital media in print anymore, um, and they were or they weren't getting newspapers. But they basically, because everything is shipped in those Amazon cardboard boxes, it revitalized the paper industry. Now, if you think, take that one step further from an Amazon perspective, instead of having their fleet of people who, you know, who drop off Amazon Prime and do everything so quickly, if you had somebody who could just send it out on a drone, that would be perhaps another instance uh, of where you could generate passive returns as, a, as an e-commerce vendor or like an, a, as a Shopify entrepreneur or something like that. I imagine there's a lot of potential. Yeah. So we have a lot of investment ideas here from high-tech self-driving devices to low-tech <laughs> cardboard boxes. We, we span the gamut here at uh, <laughs> our podcast. And there's a couple other areas where this, this really fascinates me. You mentioned before about NLP, which is natural language processing on earnings calls for CEOs of public companies. And I'm familiar with earnings calls. They're four times a year. There could be special conferences once or twice a year as well with the management team. But from what I understand is that there is software that will analyze what is being said and it can do it rather quickly, maybe over the course of maybe it's 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, as opposed to me as an analyst or you as an analyst working and listening or reading the transcript for half hour, an hour, et cetera. So there's a big time saving piece and there's also what I would call as an analyst, less cognitive bias when the NLP is doing the work for you. Is, is that essentially right? That was the toughest part of that technology to get right is to detect 
the nuances of human language. So you've, they've put, some of these firms have put some really smart people in positions to, if you think of like the way language, somebody says, oh, that's sick, or this, uh, you know, this looks like a, a, this looks like a great buy, but they say it with a, a tinge of sarcasm. Right. There's no real way for technology to detect that and understand what the person saying it actually means. So to to really get down to to be able to find a way to make technology learn from that type of stuff and understand what's actually being said, as opposed to just writing out a transcript that someone still has to read over to make sure that it's it's being understood properly and putting out the right information or giving out the right buying or selling signals. It's something that we've seen a lot of strides and progress in for some from some pretty interesting vendors. Yeah, that is pretty wild because even you know whether it's software doing it or the human analyst looking at the transcript words, reading them versus listening to the playback. There's no way for an analyst to figure that out either, but there could be technology down the road that's able to do exactly that by listening to the audio in a very rapid way, which I think will be very remarkable for people in this space. Yeah. And one of the cool things, even beyond the just being limited to financial services, what we've seen other companies do with NLP is, and really have a lot of success is Understand, like analyzing social media or articles to detect what the sentiment might look like and analyze how someone might feel about a particular brand. What is the, the sentiment about your brand? How do people feel about your company? The other way that you can also do that is you know, with, uh, with some of these companies, if they are working to encrypt data and make sure that something, in, let's say in financial services, healthcare, government, really highly regulated industries, you're putting smart technology that can uh, inhibit any opportunity for that data to be breached. And there's a couple other pieces that I want to touch upon in terms of data. You mentioned before geospatial data. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, geospatial, it kind of falls in this uh, in that alternative data bucket. And we talked a little bit about consumer credit and NLP, but geospatial is a big one as well. Um, it's one that's probably made headlines for the wrong reasons in a lot of instances because people are very weary or wary rather of having their their location tracked without their consent there's one company that we had worked with that basically had access to your location due to the fact that you were streaming music through them and then they took that information you know let's say someone someone's listening to a song and walking down fifth avenue but they go into tiffany's and they skip Foot Locker. You'll, you'll be able to determine foot traffic and how that might impact the brick and mortar business. Yeah, that's scary, but also helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing with them. There, it's It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Something that, uh, that Bernie Marr talk, talks a lot about, he wrote a, a book on data strategy, and he kind of has said that for something like that to be successful, the people who are sharing their data need to get something for free in return or something that's of value. And if you tell them what the data is being used for, like for instance, if you really like sneakers, you'll get an ad for nicer sneakers. People will be comfortable with it if it enhances their ad experience. And a lot of streaming services or media outlets or social media rather are offering that type of an option so that people at least understand what they might be signing up for. And that takes away some of the the fear factor of it. Yeah, that, that's a really good point because obviously data giving it away via an app or whatever the case may be, is, is very sensitive. But I think if it enhances someone's life or their experience, it could be more beneficial than detrimental for the consumer in that regard. 
a lot of times data is a you know a company's most valuable asset, but they have to use it responsibly. And I think that's where we've seen the rise of industries like data governance, so that you know sensitive information is held near and dear. And there's you know you want to put some comfort around that type of information. People don't you know that can be very damaging. Now we touched a bit before about work from home and how everything has changed over the past year, more than a year now. But is there anything else in terms of work from home, how it has changed your experience or client's experience? I was noticing this last night. I think you and I discussed this as well, Joe, that one of the things we both notice is that we're plugged in far more than ever before. I used to, I'd be plugged in sometimes just because I was plugged in. Now it's almost like you don't really have much of an option because you're getting calls, you're getting emails, you're getting texts after hours because some people are doing their own work. And for me, like their job search may have to come after the work hours. So I'm getting reached out to after the work day. And if I'm accessible, I can expedite some of my processes, get availability, get interviews booked in, talk through a process. And it does, it moves things along a little bit more quickly, but we're constantly plugged in. And I think a lot of my clients are sharing that as well, that if you're not commuting and you're not actually making the conscious decision to unplug, that you might find yourself at your desk in your house for an extra hour because you know you can stop whenever you'd like. So you're, there's less reason to unplug if, you, if you're that's so close by and it's there's no harm in doing so. Yeah, the, the boundaries have been blurred for sure because work, home, leisure time seems to all be consolidated into one area. I get what you're saying in terms of being plugged in. Perhaps the time trackers, I'm not sure. There, there's some apps out there. I've, I've used one in the past, but it shows me how long I've spent on my phone and what apps I've used for how long and what my usage is over day, over week. I'm sure that has spiked a lot for everyone. Now, I have one final question for you. It's a question that I ask all of my guests. Do you say data or data? I think I say data. I've heard it said both ways. It's just, uh, I don't, I never, I can't ding anyone on it, you know? <laughs> there's no right answer. There's no, uh, no concern around that, but I really appreciate your time today, Scott, and I look forward to chatting with you in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on Joe. And, uh, this was great. Thank you for listening to you say data. I say data podcast to become a member sponsor donor or podcast guest. Please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org.